Hi guys, my name's Jason Mountford and this is The Hedge Podcast and this week I'm answering listener questions. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of the show, if I get my words out. Um, and that's right, this week I have had some really good questions come through actually a couple of weeks back and I've been meaning to get to this, um, this episode to answer these questions for a little while. We've had a lot of news going on, so there's obviously a, a lot of... Um, kind of crazy stuff going on in the world of finance at the moment, whether that's inflation, whether that's uh, interest rate hikes, whether that's um, all the stuff really that I was talking about last week. I covered a lot of those details. So I've kind of pushed this one back a little bit, but I wanted to make sure that I, I got these um, got this episode recorded because um, there's some really good questions. And I think um, some of the stuff that I'm going to be talking about today um, is around ISA allowances, um, and also the kind of five-year rule that we talk about. So often you'll have heard me in past episodes of the show and other finance stuff you read. Um, we often say you shouldn't look or you shouldn't consider investing unless you've got um, at least a kind of five-year period. Five years is often the number that gets thrown around. So I want to talk a little bit about that and, and also talk about what happens after that five-year period because we we throw that, that number out a lot, but then we don't kind of explain necessarily what what the plan is after that. So I want to talk a bit about that. And then I also want to talk about foreign exchange risks. So where the world is starting to open up, well, the UK at least, some of the rest of the world is, is a little bit behind us in some respects, but generally speaking, the world is starting to get back to normal a little bit. Um, so the situation we've had the last couple of years with everybody just in their own countries, not moving, um, hopefully is going to change um, over the next year or two. So I've, I've had a question come through about um, exchange rate and when to exchange money and when to bring money back to to your home country and that sort of thing. So again, really good question that I wanted to, to ask, uh, to, wanted to answer because I think it's going to be coming up more and more. Now, if you have questions, um, this is something that I want to sort of pick up a little bit. I used to do uh, a lot of these sorts of episodes last year. I had a, a huge amount of questions coming through um, and that's kind of dropped off a little bit. I've not been asking you guys. I've not been prompting you as much. So those questions have slowed up a bit, but I think there's heaps of value in this. I think, you know, quite often... Um, when I have answered questions on the show, uh, people have, have given me the feedback that it's some of the best content, the episodes that they like the best. And I think that's because we all tend to have, or often have very similar questions. You know, the um, the issues that you have that you're not quite 100% sure of, you know, the chances are there's at least some listeners to this podcast who will have be having similar similar uh, issues or, or have similar questions. So if you would like to send me through a question, please do. The best way to get in touch with me is just to go to the website of the show, thehedge.io. Um, on the top right-hand corner, if you're on desktop, there's a there's a, a button that says ask a question, and that will take you through to the contact form where you can drop me the question. If you're on mobile, um, when you go on the website, there's like three little lines for the menu in the top right-hand corner. If you hit that, you'll see that same button, ask a question. You can also, on that same spot on the website, you can find uh, links to all my social pages as well as email if you prefer to do it that way. But please do send them through. Um, I will always get back to you, even if the question's not necessarily one for the show, maybe it's, if it's a little bit too specific um, or too individual to you, you know, I will always come back to you and give you some information, point you in the right, on, in the right direction um, or answer it on the show. So, with that said, let's kind of dive into the into these questions, and they, they've actually all come through from my listener Louise. She sent me a, a, an email which outlined a number of different things. She's asked some really good. She's made some really uh, good points, and the first one I want to talk about 
is the ISA, uh, ISA allowance limit. Because again, this is something that people like me tend to throw out there a lot, this £20,000 annual limit, which makes it sound very straightforward. Um, but actually, it is a lot more um, detailed than, than, than what it often can seem on the face of it. So Louise wants to know, she's, she's used uh, £10,700 of her £20,000 ISA limit. So she's put 10700 into a an investment, stocks and shares ISA. And she wants to know that once she has used up the 20000 so if she puts some more in, puts another, what is it, 9300 into the ISA, um, what should she do then? Should she, should she start another investment ISA? And this is a really good point because it's something that's it's definitely worth clarifying. And in order to do that, I kind of want to take a step back and explain the ISA allowance limit and explain everything that counts towards that, that cap, that limit. So as I said, it is £20,000, right? Now, the important thing to keep in mind, well, there's two, two really important uh, things to keep in mind for that. The first is that that £20,000 is your overall ISA cap, number one. The second really important part of that is that's per year. So £20,000 per year into all forms of ISA combined. So let's break this down a little bit. Now, what are the types of ISA you can have? You can have cash ISA, which is basically just like a current account, savings account with a bank. It sits in cash. It will be on your online banking. It'll be on your statements. It just has cash ISA written there rather than anything else. We've then got investment ISA or stocks and shares ISA, which is, I would say, probably the most common especially for people listening to this podcast. And even though the term says stocks and shares ISA, you can invest in almost anything. You know, there are providers that, that give you access to thousands and thousands of different funds across all different asset classes, not just stocks and shares, but also um, bonds, fixed interest, um, property funds, infrastructure, all sorts of stuff. So that's the, the, the second type. The third type is a lifetime ISA. And again, we, I have talked about this on previous episodes of the show, but the Lifetime ISA is a specialist form of ISA, which is designed mainly for people looking to purchase their first home. You can also use it for retirement planning. But the uh, Lifetime ISA is, is the, the third type. And then the fourth one um, is the Innovative Finance um, ISA, which is very niche. It's for peer-to-peer lending, um, kind of higher risk, high return investments that, are, you know, there's not even very many of these out on the market. So I tend to kind of ignore that. Really, for me, I tend to say there's the three main ones, cash ISA, stocks and shares ISA, lifetime ISA. So you've got 20 grand that you can split between all of these. Now, I'm going to start with explaining lifetime ISA very briefly, because as I said, the lifetime ISA is designed mainly for first home. The, the key difference with it is that you get a 25% bonus on any money you put in. And you can put up to £4,000 a year into this, which means if you use that full 4000 you get an extra £1,000 bonus from the government. Now, just to complicate things even further, a lifetime ISA can be a cash ISA, cash lifetime ISA, or a stocks and shares lifetime ISA. The one you choose will depend on your circumstances, how long you've gotten to you want to buy a house, those sorts of things. But all of, all of that said, that 4000 that you can put in 
of your own money, not including the bonus, the 4000 you can put in of your own money into a lifetime ISA, counts towards that annual allowance of £20,000. So let's say first thing your 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 let's say in your situation you've not bought a house you're potentially going to buy a house in the future you want to use a lifetime ISA you put your 4000 into that first okay that would make a lot of sense you get that bonus which you don't get on any of the other types of ISA the money still grows tax free you can still pull it out tax free as long as it is for a property your first property um so that sounds pretty good right so okay 4000 now that means you've utilized your full lifetime ISA allowance, you've used up the max, the 4,000 a year, and you've used up 4,000 pounds of your overall ISA allowance. So that means you've got another 16,000 now that you can put into cash ISAs and stocks and shares ISAs. Now, the other thing to keep in mind is that you can only pay into one of each type of ISA each tax year. So Let's say, okay, you've done that, your lifetime ISA, that's off to the side now. You're not going to worry about that until next tax year. You decide to invest the rest into a stocks and shares ISA. So you could put £16,000 into a stocks and shares ISA. If you put, even if you didn't put the full amount in, if you put, say, £10,000 into it today, you could then have £6,000 left that you could put into either cash ISA or a stocks and shares ISA for the rest of the year. But you can't put it into a different stocks and shares ISA. So breaking that down a little bit further, let's say you put the 10,000 into a Vanguard stocks and shares ISA. You can't then put 6,000 pounds into a Hungry's Lansdowne stocks and shares ISA unless you wait until next tax year. So you can still um, you can still uh, contribute another 6,000 later in the tax year to your Vanguard one. So you've still got the full, full uh, 16,000 or the full 20,000 to distribute into the different ISAs, but you can only use one type, one company for each type of ISA in a single tax year. Now, if you put um, 10,000 into Vanguard this year, you could open a, Van- a Hargreaves Landers down for next tax year and contribute to that. But why would you do that? Because, you know, then you've got two to manage and ongoing, it makes things a bit more complicated, but you can if you want to. And then of course, you've got your cash ISA. So you can also put money into a cash ISA whenever you want, but it is still limited to that £20,000 overall limit. So if you put your 4000 in your lifetime ISA, you put 16000 into your stocks and shares ISA, you can't put anything into a cash ISA. But if you put only 15000 into your stocks and shares ISA, you'd have a grand left, you could put that into a cash ISA if you wanted to. Now, with interest rates where they are at the moment, you'd be kind of crazy to waste ISA allowance on a cash ISA just because you're very unlikely, unless you've got a massive amount of money in cash ISAs, you're very unlikely to ever uh, or to hit any any tax anyway. And the benefit of using ISAs is that it's tax-free. Well, if you can get uh, money in a regular everyday current account or savings account because the interest is so low, you're not paying tax anyway, it's kind of a bit of a waste. Because it's also important to keep in mind that you can transfer between the ISAs. So if you've got money in a stocks and shares ISA, and you're deciding that you you want to reduce your risk a little bit, or your you know markets are really high and you want to take some profits or whatever, you can transfer that from the stocks and shares ISA to a cash ISA without it counting as a new contribution. So you can kind of move the money across the different ISAs without it counting as a new new contribution. So the really key point to keep in mind is that that twenty thousand pound limit is for all of your different types of ISA. And just because you've used up the £20,000 with one particular company, that limit is per annum, not per company. So if you 
don't have a lifetime ISA, for example, and you put your full 20,000 pounds into a Vanguard, let's use them again, into a Vanguard stocks and shares ISA, you can't then open another stocks and shares ISA and have another 20,000 pound limit. The limit is for you, not for the company that you're investing with. Okay, so that was a really good question. Hopefully that kind of clears things up a little bit into how the, the annual allowances for, for ISAs work. But again, if you have additional questions around that, if there's something I've not uh, quite explained properly or you wanted to double check, please do get in touch with me, thehedge.io, jump on the website and ask me your question as well. More than happy to talk through this because I think it's really, really important. Um, ISAs are, they're actually amazing. They're really um, such a free kick. When I moved from Australia to the UK, I kind of couldn't believe it. I was like looking for a catch. You know, we don't have anything like that in Australia. You pay tax on on everything. There's no other than your pension fund in Australia, which has the same limitations as here. You can't access it until you're in your 50s or 60s. Um, there's nothing like that in Australia. So I was kind of like I say, looking for the catch and thinking, well, where's the downside here? So you should really, if you're um, if you're starting out with investments or you know you're not utilizing ISIS as much as possible, you definitely should have a good long look at that because it's uh, it's great, really good type of account. So the next part of uh, Louise's question that she wants to know, again, it's, it's something that comes up fairly often, right? So she's got a bit of money, a few thousand dollars in US dollars. So Louise was working in the United States pre-COVID, uh, pre-pandemic, and she had some money in account there, 4,000 US dollars, and she wants to know what she should do. Should she bring that back to the UK? Should she leave it here? How should she work with the exchange rate and managing that money properly for the long term? And this dilemma really is the same whether you've got some money offshore just from working. Um, I've had a lot of people who are expats, so people like me who are living in a different country than maybe where they used to live. So, you know, built up assets in one country, whether that's Australia or the US or European country, wherever, and now live in a different country. You know, should you bring your money over or should you leave it in the other country? You know, what's the best option uh, or the best way to approach things? And from my perspective, when it comes to managing the risk within your portfolio or managing the risk within your your kind of money setup, you know, I think wherever there's a an opportunity to completely eliminate one form of risk from your portfolio, um, you should do it, right? Because I think that's the really important thing to keep in mind is that if you have money in two different countries, you are introducing significant an amount of exchange rate risk or foreign exchange risk. And this is basically where the the, uh, the exchange rate can move against you um, irregardless of what the underlying asset has done. So for example, um, you know, with, with cash, let's just use the cash as the example, right? So the benefit of holding cash is that it can't drop in value. It can be eroded away over the long term by inflation, but the actual um, the pounds and pence figure doesn't actually change. So if you've got £5,000, $5,000, say US dollars in cash, and the US dollar appreciates against the pound by 20%, so that means the pound has weakened by 20%, that means that 5000 um that 5,000 US dollars in pound terms has actually dropped 20%. So if you brought it back to the UK, you converted it, you've basically lost 20% of the value of that money when it's converted back to pounds. Now that can go the other way. It can, the pound could appreciate against the dollar. 
which means that actually you've made money on that cash. But it's like anything, you know, the, the higher your potential return, the greater your potential risk. And if especially if you're looking at cash, that's not what you have cash for. You have cash there to be a security. Um, and I've seen this with clients before where it actually worked in their favor. The, the one client that I have in mind, um, bit of a unique scenario, they had a, a property in Barbados um, and they they lost a huge amount on the property in terms of the actual property value, but the, the US dollar had depreciated so much to the pound that actually that had um, made up for a lot of their losses, so it worked out quite well for them. But actually, if the opposite had happened, if the property had gone down in value and the the um, the pound had depreciated against the dollar, it could have really have wrecked them. So, you know, it is one of those ones where, from my perspective, you, if you can get rid of that risk, you just should. You know, you can still take um, take risk with the money in terms of investing it, but that's a lot more predictable. When it comes to foreign exchange, you know, even with um, even with even in investing circles, when you're talking about hedge fund managers and, and that sort of thing, foreign foreign exchange is incredibly hard, basically impossible to predict. And even even people who um, who purport to be able to predict stock markets or you know believe strongly in active management of, of investments will often hedge out the, the the foreign exchange risk. So they basically buy financial instruments that makes counteracts the difference. So if if one currency goes up against another, you know, they buy a contract which is a which basically allows them to purchase the other currency in proportion with the amount that's gone up and down. So even big hedge fund managers will like you as the, the name kind of implies, they hedge out that risk. Um, so this is one area where I don't think it's worth taking taking that risk if you don't have to. So if you have money that's just sitting somewhere in another country and you're not planning on going back to that country, you know almost all the time I think it is worth bringing that money back to wherever it is that you live. Now, the only proviso to that would be if there are some sort of penalties and that sort of thing. So if it's a particular account, that means you'll lose money if you take it out. Um, obviously, you'd have to think very carefully about whether those penalties are actually worth it. Um, so, obviously, there's some specific things you'd have to consider in your own circumstances. But broadly speaking, you know, I think if you can um, narrow the spread of your assets, you have better control over them. It means you can make decisions based on, you know, rules that you understand. And also, the other important thing to keep in mind is that. If you do get to the point in the future where you want to go and see a professional, um, whether that's a financial advisor, whether that's a solicitor, whether that's an accountant, um, it's very difficult to find someone who can provide advice to you on assets that are overseas. You know, for me, for example, um, I'm a financial advisor here in the UK. I was a financial advisor in Australia. I've actually got quite a few people who I deal with who have assets in Australia. Uh, a lot of people find me via content and things and um they specifically come to me because it's so hard to find somebody who understands both the Australian system and the UK system. But even in saying that, I know how the Australian system works. I was a regulated and licensed financial advisor there, but legally I can't provide specific advice around those assets because they're not regulated under by the FCA. You know, the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority here in the UK, doesn't regulate Australian pension funds. So I can't provide formal advice. I can talk to people about it and tell them generally how it works and some of the things to think about, but I can't put that down in writing and say, this is what you should do. 
So that's the other thing to keep in mind is the more complex your situation is, the more cross-border issues you have, the harder you will find it to find somebody who can provide you um, advice as well. So yeah, long story short, broadly speaking, if you have money in different countries, it makes a lot of sense to consolidate that into the country where you plan to spend at least the bulk of the rest of your life. So Last question from Louise. Again, really good one. Um, it's a banger of an email, this one, Louise. So thank you for sending it through. Um, she asked about the five-year investment timeframe because this is something that people like me, financial planners, content creators, often will talk about. You know, we say that you know if you're planning to invest your money, you should only invest if you've got at least five years um, to leave your money alone, at least a five-year investment timeframe or a time horizon. And you know, I have explained in the past, but to kind of reiterate why that is, is in the vast majority of cases, any investment that you go into, especially like DIY, you know, off the off the, off the shelf platforms and that sort of thing, there's no there's no um, penalty with taking your money sooner. You know, some things like bonds and stuff that can be, but broadly speaking, for like an ISA or a general account that sort of thing, you know, you can take your you can invest everything today, and then take it out three three in three weeks time. You know, in the vast majority of cases, there's not going to be actually any mechanism that is stopping you from doing that. So why do we say five years? Well, really, that just comes down to market fluctuations. And when you are looking at making an investment, the thing you've always got to keep in mind is that if you're investing in something that can grow, grow over the long term, like the stock market, it can also go down as well. And it will go down. If you invest, there will there will be a point where you'll lose money. The tricky thing is that no one really knows when that point will be. You know, you could invest um, a big chunk of your life savings. You invest it three weeks later, the market tanks. We have another crash of some type, and it drops thirty five percent. That could happen, or you could invest at a great time, and the first three years you make double digit returns. Three years on the on the trot. There's no way for anyone to really tell with any degree of certainty at what point you will be making your initial investment. At what, you know, if there was, then no one would ever invest at the at a time when there was going to be potentially a market crash. So, when we say 5 years, all that we're really saying is that you your money could go down at the start of your investment period. So, you could put the money in the first couple of years could be really shit, really rough. You could lose money for 2 years on the bounce. So, you need to be able to stay invested to actually recover those losses. And broadly speaking, five years tends to be long enough to actually see that through. So if you have, um, like say, a rough couple of years to start with where the portfolio goes down in value for the first first 18 months, first two years, you've then got three, two to three years to actually recover and get back into the red. And there's no, again, there's no way to know what that switch might be. You know, you might have a bad year, then two good years, then two bad years, then a good year. It could be three bad years and then two really good years and then one average year. You know, no one knows what that kind of first five years looks like. But generally speaking, if you go back and kind of back test investing at really any point in time in history, in the vast majority of cases, five years tends to get you into the red. Now, you know, there's going to be a big difference between the potential you know, range of returns. There are certain five-year periods that perform significantly better than other five-year periods. But again, if you're comparing it to uh, cash and trying to beat inflation, you know, broadly over that kind of period of time, it will generally do that. Um, 
hasn't always, but like I say, it's all it's all kind of rules of thumb. So that's kind of the first starting point, right? Is to think about think about that first five year period as kind of your your um, your safety net, really, where you can afford to have a couple of years where things don't go so well. But what happens after that, right? Because we tend to say that you know investing for a five year period, but then after that, it really comes down to what your objective is, and I think this is a really important point to make because people tend to have one of two, well, objectives tend to fall into one of two different pots. The first pot is a lump sum objective, and the second pot is an income objective. So lump sum objective is, you know, you are saving for your first house, for example. You want to buy a property, you want to buy a property in six years' time, um, and you would like to get together as much of a deposit as possible over that six-year investment time horizon. So in that case, it's pretty obvious what you do really. You know, you would, after you've... uh, you know, after you've gone through that market cycle, you would access the lump sum, buy a house. Now, where it gets a little bit interesting is thinking about where you are at in the market cycle and how far away you are from investing. So that five-year time horizon is a bit of a moving target. So investing today for, not five years, sorry, six years. If you're investing today and you're planning to have a buy property in six years' time, at the moment, your time horizon is, is six years. As time ticks on, the desire or the time to buy that property is going to get shorter and shorter. So actually, this is something that you always need to be constantly reviewing. So if if you let's say you've got you've had three really good years, right? You invest today, you've got three really good years, you've made some decent returns, things are looking good. You've got three more years left on your time horizon. Now, because you've built in a buffer, you don't have to say, oh, I've got less than five years left, so I should just move my money to cash. No, you don't need to do that because you've already had three good years. If you invested, say, I don't know, 20,000 pounds, maybe that money's gone up to 30,000 pounds now. So you've got like a good a good buffer in there where things have, um, well, maybe it wouldn't have gone up quite that much. That's pretty good returns, but you know, 26,000 pounds, say. You've built up a nice little buffer in there. So if you have a couple of years that are a bit rough, you know, you're still going to be ahead at the end of the day. But as that time gets closer, it can be worth reconsidering the level of risk that you're taking. You know, if you've had five years elapsed in your in your investment and you've got about 12 months left, you want to buy a house in 12, 18 months, you know, that is a good time to start thinking about, right, where's my, how's my portfolio positioned now? It, you know, the returns have been good. Um, I've banked some pretty good gains from this. Um, what is the worst case scenario for me here? Because what you would hate to have happen is if, you, if you've invested quite aggressively, say, let's say you've got 80% in the stock market and you're planning to buy in six years, you have some really good, um, you have a really good sort of four or five year stretch, you've got 12 months left to go and then coronavirus hits. Obviously, if this was back a little bit, your portfolio drops 40% pretty much overnight. That kind of scuppers your plans a little bit. Now, you know, you could you could push that plan out. You could wait till it recovers. You've obviously built in a buffer, that sort of thing. But my point really is, is that as you start to get closer to wanting to access that lump sum, it can make sense to t- start to take some risk off the table. And you can do that by just moving some of the portfolio to cash. You can do that by starting to make it a little bit less aggressive. So if you start early in the period with 80% equity, maybe as you get closer to wanting to buy a house, maybe you move that to 60, then maybe you move that down to 30, and then you maybe you do move the whole thing to cash. That 
has to be a moving target. And it's just important to keep in mind what's the kind of worst case scenario here. So worst case scenario when you're early on in that journey, if you're in year one and if it drops 40%, well, you've got five years to recover. Probably going to be okay, depending on what you've invested in, obviously. If you've got a year left, maybe you should start thinking about the level of risk in the portfolio. So that's that's the first um, kind of way that that plays out when you've got a lump sum objective and you've got a set time frame until you want to to, to, to access that lump sum. The second type of objective is an income-based objective. And this is um, the most common one is if you're planning for retirement, but it could also be things like um, maybe you're planning to start a family and one of you wants to reduce from working full-time down to working you know, three days a week. Um, maybe you want to have a career change and you know that that's going to mean a 25% pay cut. So you, know, you want to have build up some investments to be able to, to, to kind of bridge that gap whilst you get into your new new career. Loads of different um, reasons why you might have an income-based objective. And an income-based objective, as you know, as I've just explained, is where you have a pot of money that you're going to need to access dribs and drabs, but you're not going to need to access the full amount. Now, again, there's a number of different ways that you can tackle this, but depending on the length of that that um, that income stream, the length of time you want that income stream to support, you can actually keep the money invested after you start to access it. So let's use retirement as the most common example, um, as the example to talk through, because that is the most common um, way that this type of um, this type of objective is is approached. So for, for the vast majority of people these days, with annuity rates so low, they will have a pot, uh, a pension pot of however much, couple hundred grand, whatever. Once the, the people hit retirement, you don't just pull everything out of your pension and put it into the bank. You know, you leave the money in there, and you leave the money invested. Because whilst you're going to need access to some of that those funds to meet your ongoing living costs, the vast majority of that pot can still stay invested. It can still stay there to grow and keep pace with inflation, or hopefully grow above inflation over the long term. So, you know, if you've got £200,000 in a pension pot, let's say you're taking £1,000 a month from it, you know, you have this situation where just because you hit retirement and start accessing the money, actually nothing necessarily needs to change with the portfolio. You know, you might be actually uh, actively accessing that money, but your investment time frame could still be way longer than five years. You know, so if you're 65 and you're planning to live and planning to live until age 90 um, that's a 25 year investment time frame now you are accessing the money in that meantime over that that investment time frame but the plan is to keep the money invested um, for for a very long time so again when you're thinking about the structure of the portfolio there are things that will change you know maybe if you're um, investing in a more aggressive portfolio leading up to retirement or leading up to needing access to the funds. Maybe you do drop things, you know, to be a little bit more defensive once retirement rolls around or once your your career changes. Because, you know, you still want that money to grow, but you do want maybe the value to be a bit more stable, you know, to be able to rely on, on that pot not fluctuating too much. So there's still tweaks that can happen to the asset allocation. But broadly speaking, you know, your time frame is actually going to be potentially a lot longer than, you know, when you plan to just start to access those funds. And just the very kind of last bit that I want to touch on with, with that scenario is it really highlights the importance of um, 
of the way you structure the investment. So a lot of the stuff you read online is about how you can keep things dead simple, single multi-manager fund or multi-asset fund, you know, one Vanguard fund, you know, all cap, global all cap, whatever. And, you know, when you're trying to build up your assets, those sort, that sort of advice, you know, there's nothing wrong with it, right? Like keep things simple, build it up. Yeah, fine, understand. Where it really pays to get a bit more nuanced and a bit more specific around things is when you're planning on accessing that money. And one really common example is, you know, if you are going through, uh, if we're going through a big market crash, right, and you need access to a lump sum of cash for whatever reason, or if you're accessing for income, you need access to a couple of months worth of income payments, six months worth of income payments, whatever the case may be. If you have a single fund, you have to sell down part of that fund for your cash. You just do. You know, you don't have a choice. You have one fund. If you need 10 grand from that, you sell it. You sell it at a loss and you you pocket the money or bank the money for whatever cost you've got. If you have a more detailed portfolio, and when I say more detailed, I mean rather than having one fund that has American um, equities, UK equities, Japanese equities, um, bonds, gilts, cash, property, infrastructure, all that, all in one fund, you actually split it out and you have a separate fund or a separate mini portfolio for each of those individual asset classes. Now, the reason why that can be really worthwhile when you're accessing the funds is because it means you can pick and choose where you take that withdrawal from. So let's just use um, an example of, so 2020, um, coronavirus pandemic, end of the year, US stock market was up 16%. UK stock market was down 14%. Right, those are the actual figures. There, there, about something like that. Quite a big difference between the two countries. Now, if you needed access to ten grand, and you had an equity portfolio that was all that was mushed into one, you would be selling it, selling all of it evenly because you have to if you have a single fund, and you'd be selling down your UK component at a fourteen percent loss, which you shouldn't do. You know, if you're investing in the stock market and you're at a loss, if you're invested like in a diversified way, if, if there's a, if there's a good chance that it will recover, you're better off waiting for it to recover. With a broad do-everything fund, you can't. With individual specific funds, what you could have done in that particular year is say, right, I'm going to leave the UK investments alone because they've had a rough year. The likelihood is they'll probably recover in the next year or two. The US, on the other hand, has done very, very well. Let's pull a bit of that profit off the table, take my withdrawal from my US component. Overall, your equity component has stayed the same. You know, you've not... Um, You've not taken it from the cash holding or the fixed interest. So the overall risk of your portfolio hasn't changed. Um, you've got a little bit less diversification, but you've also not sold anything down at all. So all those sort of little bits and pieces, bits of details um, can be worth considering if you're someone who is looking to start accessing some of the pot for an income objective, especially, you know, the more, um, the more it, there's a lot more value in having a portfolio that's a bit more detailed, a bit more robust, depending on your own underlying circumstances. Okay, guys, I hope you found that useful. I think that was a really good email. So thank you again, Louise, for sending that one through. Um, As I said at the start, if you guys have uh, questions that you would like answered as well, make sure you jump onto the website, thehedge.io, hit that button, ask me a question and let me know. Let me know what's going on in your financial world. Let me know what questions you've got. Let me know what's making you scratch your head. And I would be more than happy to answer those for you on the podcast. I'm going to be doing more of these. So please, please do send those through. Now, if you are wanting to get a handle on investment markets a little bit more yourself, different asset classes, uh, you know, 
risk profiling, diversification, emergency funds, all that kind of stuff. If you've got all these things circling around in your head, you want a bit more clarity, you want a bit more information and you want that information for free, then I'd highly recommend going onto the website and downloading uh, or, or getting a free copy of my ebook, which is called Modern Investing Fundamentals. And in the ebook, I break down all the major asset classes, including cryptocurrency. I explain what an emergency fund is, how much you should have in one, how to uh, get proper diversification, the different types of risk you can take, loads of different stuff in there that provides some really good detail on the fundamentals of investing. So um, if you want to get your copy, just go to the hedge.io website, um, enter in your email address, and I will send a copy direct straight to your uh, email inbox. And really the very last thing, if I could just ask a favor, if you could please, um, if you listen to the show on, on Apple or on Spotify, wherever you listen to your show, if you could please follow the show and leave me a five-star review. I've noticed that if um, I get reviews and if I get people hitting that follow button, that makes a really big difference to how the show performs in the rankings. So that would be a really amazing way that you could help me um, help support the show and make sure I can keep doing this. So as always, guys, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to listen to the episode and I look forward to speaking to you next week.